How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm Edwith Theogene. Um, we've got a, a super interesting um, show subject for you all today. Uh, today, January 22nd, is the 47th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, a landmark Supreme Court uh, decision that established the right to access abortion care and protects an individual's constitutional right to abortion. Unfortunately, however, regulations on abortion at the federal, federal, state, and local level have kept access to abortion out of reach for uh, lots of people, many people in this country. Uh, to discuss why Roe v. Wade is so important to so many people um, and to break down what still needs to be done in order to ensure that all people can access abortion care, we are joined by Jackie Blank, the federal legislative strategist and Act for Women campaign manager at the Center for Reproductive Rights. Welcome, Jackie. Thanks for having me. Uh, and also Jamil Fields-Allsbrook, the director of the Women's Initiative at the Center for American Progress. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me also. Um, so uh, I think we can just go ahead and jump right in into our conversation here today. Um, and I know uh, I just wanted to also mention Edwith, um, <laughs> the GP co-host. Uh, she has a, a background um, in repro rights as well. So <laughs> I feel like, Edwith, you should just you should just take over whenever <laughs> you want because I feel like you are going to have much more expertise and much more uh, probing questions on this. Um, but I think just to, to kick it off, Jackie, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your role at the Center for Reproductive Rights? and how you came to this work? Sure. Um, so the Center for Reproductive Rights is a global legal nonprofit that fights on behalf of people who need to have greater access to reproductive health. Um, we do this globally, we do this domestically, um, and a lot of that is done through litigation. I'm not an attorney, I'm one of the few. Um, but in addition to doing the litigation work, we also work proactively on legislation. Um, this is an incredibly important aspect of the work to make sure that not only are we sort of being defensive against bad legislation, but also that we're pushing the ball forward. And so at the Center for Reproductive Rights, I run something called the Act for Women campaign, which is a campaign of 100 over 100 groups across the country who are supportive of the Women's Health Protection Act. Uh, and this is a bill that would give abortion providers statutory rights to provide abortion care free from medically unnecessary restrictions. And we're really excited about it. Fabulous. Uh, super important work. Um, and so so can you dig in a little bit more um, on the Act for Women campaign? Yeah. So like I mentioned, it's got over 100 organizations, and these span from big national organizations like Planned Parenthood and the ACLU to individual abortion clinics across the country, environmental groups, LGBTQ groups, um, really reproductive justice groups, reproductive health groups, uh, really 
addressing the full spectrum of the reproductive health rights and justice movement, making sure that you know we're act- accurately reflecting the needs of the communities that we're trying to help most with this legislation, um, which is also important because members of Congress want to hear from their constituents. They don't always want to hear from me. And so we're making sure that we're, <laughs> as lovely as I think I am, um, we're making sure that we're, we're helping folks on the ground make their case to their members of Congress and their communities. And can you tell us a little bit more about the Women's Health Protection Act and why this is such a important bill? Yeah. Um, so the Women's Health Protection Act, which actually has 215 co-sponsors in the House, Woo-hoo! which is so exciting. <laughs> um, this is a bill that would require states to allow providers to provide care free for medically unnecessary restrictions. So across the country, we're seeing states pass bills that single out abortion providers in ways that have nothing to do with their provision of care, have nothing to do with best medical practices, and are certainly not in the best interest of patients. It's really motivated by uh, anti-abortion politicians and politics. And so what this bill basically says is you have to treat providers of abortion care the same way that you treat providers of any other type of health care. So anything you wouldn't regulate for gastroenterologists or dental practices, you wouldn't also be able to regulate for abortion providers. And so what that means is the laws like uh, admitting privileges laws or gestational bans saying you can't have an abortion after, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, 15 weeks, um, those would not be able to be enforced or enacted under the Women's Health Protection Act. Yeah, nobody is like, so we really want you to think about whether or not you want that tooth extracted. You, right. We should, uh, <laughs> we need you to go home and sit on that, think about whether or not you're making the moral choice. Yeah, take 72 <laughs> two hours <laughs> think about it yeah absolutely yeah great and we will dig deeper into all of that it's such a great bill <laughs> um, and Jamil I know you've been on the show before we're happy to have you back uh, but can you give us a quick refresher on the women's initiative here at CAP and what your team is currently working on Sure. So the women's initiative here at CAP uh, is uh, divided into two parts. One, we have our uh, economic side of the house, and then uh, the other side is focused upon uh, health and rights. And so I oversee our health and rights uh, work. Um, so the econ side of the uh, team is working on things like paid leave, also um, making the economic case around a lot of issues and how they impact and disproportionately affect women. Um, because as we all unfortunately no women um, uh, uh, learn earn less than men um, and uh, on the women's health and rights side um, that work I also think about it is divided up in two parts partly focused upon um, access to sexual and reproductive health care including access to abortion uh, access to birth control infertility treatment um, but we also do a lot of work making sure that women's particular needs are integrated into the broader health care system so so uh, we recently put out uh, an analysis around how the ACA healthcare repeal bill will uh, impact women, or we do a lot of work around maternal health and how we can improve both the delivery system, uh, coverage, data, research, et cetera, uh, to uh, resolve the maternal health crisis in this country. And we even do work around how um, uh, reproductive justice and climate justice um, are, are, in, are intersectional. So um, I want to bring us back just for a minute here to talk a little bit about why we're having this conversation again. I mentioned it um, in the opening, um, but today is the 47th anniversary um, of Roe v. Wade, which was decided on January 22nd, 1973, which, uh, I mean, when I... I I was born in 1987, so it's kind of it's kind of wild to think that this actually hasn't been around for that long. We, t- I mean, I am I think all of 
like we maybe all t- almost take it for granted. Um, mm-hmm. just just something that's been a fact of our our lives, um, even as we're seeing rollbacks and that sort of thing. But uh, so important. It just feels like um, to so many of us, uh, like we've always had it. Um, and so it's so scary to think um, that that wasn't always the case and that might not always um, be the case. But uh, Jamil, at a high level, can you walk us through what the decision meant? Sure, sure. So, and you know, the short way of putting it is that, you know, Roe v. Wade established the constitutional right to an abortion. Um, uh, you know, if that's sort of the legal, I am a lawyer, so I won't go into all of the decisions, <laughs> but uh, sort of the legal right, um, but just more as a practical matter, like you mentioned, many of us who are in this room who might be 80s babies, our parents uh, definitely can remember and probably adults <laughs> uh, by the time uh, this right was established and what it practically meant for a lot of women, it was the economic, um, financial security, as well as ability to control their own bodies and their, make their own health care decisions. Um, Answer uh, had put out a landmark study called the Turnaway Study, a few years back, and they where they talked about women who are denied an, an abortion um, are more likely to um, uh, continue living in poverty, more likely to stay in abusive relationships, greater likelihood of mental health issues. Um, and uh, here at CAP, we also put out an analysis where we looked at some of those troublesome state restrictions that uh, Jackie mentioned and where it showed that in states where women are living that have these quote-unquote trap trap laws um, uh, women are less able to move between jobs uh, less able to um, uh, to uh, transition out of a job that might be paying paying them uh, less than they feel they deserved or um, and and less so at a job that might keep them impoverished um, and also uh, you know so, so for all those helpful benefits you you know, it's un- not unsurprising that um, Roe v. Wade is extremely popular and has remained extremely popular among the public. Uh, nearly 80% of Americans um, report uh, supporting uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, and and it's because of all of that um, security and health, and um, that it it afforded many women and um, people who don't identify as women that, that are seeking abortions. Jackie, you have anything that that sort of sparked for you or anything you want to add on that? I think it really goes back to what you were saying about how important Roe v. Wade is and sort of the general lexicon about people's ability to access abortion care. And we're, we're so used to having it that I think um, not a lot of thought has gone in the general public has gone into what could happen if it was gone. Um, and I think that that's something that maybe the other side is, is counting on. And so we're, we're really pushing, trying to push the ball forward to make sure folks know what their rights are, um, how best to protect them, and, and sort of what they can do as the next step. Fabulous. Well, uh, you're listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, uh, today, January 22nd, it's the 47th anniversary of uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, so we've got our guests here joining us in studio, Jackie Blank, as well as uh, Jamil Fields-Allsbrook. And we will be right back with you after this commercial break. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Takeover by Generation Progress. Um, my name is Edwith Theogene. I'm one of your co-hosts. and I'm Charlotte Hancock. 
today, January 22nd, is the 47th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, a landmark Supreme Court decision that established the right to abortion. We are joined by Jackie Blank, the federal legislative strategist and Act for Women campaign manager at the Center for Reproductive Rights. Hi, everybody. And Jamil Fields Alsbrook, the director of the Women's Initiative at the Center for American Progress. Hello. Thanks for having me again. No problem. So we just ended our first segment talking about Roe v. Wade, so let's dive deeper into that. Um, Jamil, where do you think Roe v. Wade has fallen short? Yeah, so um, while Roe is something that we celebrate and look at at least once a year, um, it's definitely worth mentioning that it is not a right that has been realized perhaps ever for certain uh, communities, people with low incomes, um, uh, communities of color, young people, people living uh, in certain areas like the South. And that is not by mistake, you know, um, right after or probably even before the road decision, uh, we had those who are anti-choice um, organizing about how to, if we can't, they can't stop uh, the right to an abortion, how to undermine it or um, make it so meaningless that uh, women won't, um, people won't actually be able to access abortion. So you saw things like a, even a couple years after uh, Roe, um, uh, the Roe decision, um, we saw the Hyde Amendment, which um, uh, prohibits uh, fe- certain federal funding from going to pay for abortion coverage. And so you have people who are in the Medicaid program that provides coverage to low-income people or people uh, in the Peace Corps, people in uh, federal prisons, uh, Native American women who are unable to use coverage to access uh, um, a- abortion. So for many people, that means they won't be able to get it. And so having this theoretical right ultimately ends up mean- meaning nothing. Um, and we see that, um, uh, you know, like I said, that happened in 1976, uh, and it gets, gets uh, put in an annual bill every year. Um, but we also have seen other sort of un um, other attacks that have gone uh, some under the radar, such as even just a couple weeks ago, um, the Trump administration finalized a rule attacking private insurance coverage of abortion, requiring these additional um, burdensome restrictions that, that insurers have to send two bills, uh, one for abortion, if abortion is included in your plan, another if abortion is not. And the, the idea is just to get people, uh, insur- private insurance, to just drop abortion, to just um, financially won't make sense and not feasible for insurance company uh, to keep uh, covering it. And then we also have seen um, uh, attacks that uh, Jackie uh, mentioned uh, around all of these various ways that states have sought to uh, limit or undermine um, abortion access by targeting providers and health centers. Um, So you see these uh, unnecessary, both the waiting periods that are mentioned, you also see things like the center has to be like an ambulatory surgical center um, or you see um, some states trying to kick abortion providers um, out of their Medicaid program. We saw a rule to, that ultimately did end up kicking a lot of family planning providers including um, a, those who provide abortion like Planned Parenthood out of the Title X network. So all of that has what ultimately been that 
there is a right to an abortion, but for many people, um, they aren't able to access, actually access abortion. There was a New York Times analysis that said that 11 million um, women um, or 11 million women of reproductive age live in an area where they have to drive more than an hour to access um, abortion. And so, um, and we've seen those sort of state attacks escalate even in recent years, including um, uh, a, a case out of uh, Louisiana where um, the state passed a law that is nearly ident- that is identical to a um, law that the Supreme Court struck down just a couple years before, um, saying that if you uh, the health centers have to be within 30 miles of um, of a hospital and have, have admitting privileges, all these things that are just designed to be uh, unnecessary and just uh, prevent um, ab- abortion access, and so. That case is coming uh, before the Supreme Court on uh, just a couple short months as oral arguments. But uh, this is not the first and uh, unfortunately probably won't be the last we see of, of similar. Yeah, this is basically, I mean, you're totally right. I think there is a concerted effort to do away with access to abortion. I think the stat is that since 2011, 2010, there's been over 400 restrictions at the state level against uh, abortion access, which make it difficult to gain access, which shame individuals that are trying to get um, an abortion. And it is kind of ridiculous. And I think, uh, Jackie, you were talking about the Women's Health Protection Act as being sort of like a federal policy solution to a lot of these issues. Um, how do you see this bill and how do you see the work that's happening around reproductive rights now, like kind of uh, responding to all of the different challenges that Jamil just elaborated? Yeah, so when we talk about the Women's Health Protection Act, we often talk about it as making the promise of Roe a reality for, for people on the ground, um, which Emil said was absolutely right. There is, a, there is a theoretical right for people to access abortion care, but if and when they uh, try to do so, they face a number of different hurdles. And so by creating this proactive statutory right for providers to provide care free from all of the restrictions that Jamil was talking about, it means that there are more clinics available for people to be able to access them. So people in the South, people in rural areas, people with lower incomes for whom it's more difficult to travel longer distances would have easier access to care. And I think, you know, the conversation has also changed a lot over the last 47 years and longer. Um, the, the shame and stigma that you were mentioning, um, I think, was an effective tool by the other side for a long time to, to make it um, politically difficult for people to support abortion access. And I think that that narrative is absolutely changing. I think more people are coming forward and being public with their own abortion stories. Um, the National Network of Abortion Funds and We Testify have this sort of everyone loves someone who's had an abortion campaign. I love them. I love them. I love those And t-shirts. We Testify is now its own independent uh, <laughs> yes. storytelling entity now, like divided from the National Network of Abortion Funds. All you, right. Um, we're going to jump right back into that and talk about more about how things have changed once we come back from our next our break. Generation Progress, takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Edwith, your co-host. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. Uh, again, today is the 20 is the 47th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. We're joined by Jamil Fields Alsbrook, um, the director of the Women's Initiative at the Center for American Progress, and Jackie Blink, the federal legislative strategist and Act for Women campaign manager at the Center for. 
Before we jumped off to commercial, um, Jackie, you were just telling us about talking. Can you tell us a little bit more about the stigma and the shame that you were sharing with us earlier that happens when people um, that is connected to all of the different attacks around abortion care access? Yeah, I mean, one of the ways that anti-abortion politicians have been so successful at getting regulations passed is by treating abortion as other. They insist that it's not health care. They insist that there aren't circumstances under which anyone should ever need or want to access abortion care. And when that's true, people feel like they can pull it apart from the way that the rest of health care is treated, which is to say that they could pass these restrictions that have nothing to do with positive health outcomes that single out abortion providers. Um, and it also emboldens people to do the types of things like rally outside of clinics and protest people who are trying to go access health care, right? At the end of the day, people are just trying to get health care. No one should ever have to feel shame for, for doing so. We would never shame someone for going to get a colonoscopy and taking care of their health. And certainly we should never do the same for someone who's trying to access abortion care. And so I think, you know, the ability of the community to sort of rally in the last couple of years and make it clear everyone loves someone who's had an abortion, this is nothing to be ashamed of, um, has meant that a lot of people are able to come out of the woodwork to their own families and their own networks. And when you do realize that friends close to you have access to abortion care, you know it's not something scary or other, it's just part of healthcare. Yeah. It's great for us to, to kind of reframe our thinking and think about that because you're so right that they do divide and take away uh, reproductive health and abortion care access and make it siloed um, and not think about it in the full spectrum of like healthcare, which is what it is. Um, and can I just add yes. one thing? I should also mention that, you know, since I was talking about all the bad things that have happened in <laughs> recent times, I should mention on the positive that 2019s, we saw a year of more proactive measures introduced at the state level, some of which was to you know, recognize that, you know, abortion is health care to enshrine um, the right to an abortion into law to prohibit uh, discrimination against abortion providers. And so uh, we saw more of that happening in 2019 at the state level than any any year previous. So that's that's a good the good news. And that is that. good. I think there was um, was it Oregon was the state law? Um, I don't know about Oregon. I know New York, New York. has one, uh, Illinois, Maine, um, and Nevada. Uh, Oregon might have introduced one of them. Yeah, that was um, the result of a lot of groundswell support. Mm -hmm. And that was really amazing to see all the stuff happening in 2019 and um, such great work done by like all of all and like all mm -hmm. different coordinated efforts. Um, so going back and talking a little bit more about uh, Roe v. Wade and what does that really look like in real life. Um, Jamil and Jackie, whoever wants to jump in, how can we improve and expand access to abortion? I know we talked about the Women's Health Protection Act, which is at the federal level, um, and some of the stuff that's been happening at the state level, but what are some things that we can really uh, take a look at? I would add one other piece of federal legislation, which is the Each Woman Act. Um, Jamil was talking about the Hyde Amendment and how problematic it is that anyone who accesses their health care or is insured, gets their health insurance through the federal government is not able to get abortion care covered. The average cost of a first trimester abortion is between four and $500. That's a lot of money. Most people just don't have that money sitting around. And I think that's probably especially true for people who are enrolled in programs like Medicaid. And so, you know, we talk about access, but we need to have funding as the cover, coverage and affordability as a sort of um, partner piece, because if th there's a clinic open next to you, but you don't have the money to walk through the door, um, access isn't real or comprehensive for you. And so we'd like to think of the Women's Health Protection Act and each as sort of partner pieces of legislation that we hope can be moved forward together. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think overall, you know, we, we well, again, while we talk about Roe and Celebrated, you know, Roe um, should be sort of the floor and not the ceiling. And so you even hear some conversations around, like, codifying Roe and, you know, um, those sorts of uh, efforts. While uh, it's great to protect and enshrine uh, Roe uh, and the, the constitutional right to abortion into law um, uh, and, and not just as, as, a, as a, a court case, um, it, it we, we do need to go further into some of the things that uh, both the Each Woman Act as well as WIPA uh, would bring about um, and also couple that with things like expanding access to uh, teleabortions, which we've seen has been another positive development um, uh, uh, since uh, you know Roe uh, decision, um, but also uh, prohibit um, some of these other measures around uh, discrimination against uh, providers who provide abortion. And some of those restrictions don't say anything about abortion. So just earlier today, um, uh, uh, the Trump administration approved a waiver uh, to allow Texas to kick certain providers out of their um, Medicaid network um, and removing sort of these very administrative ways, removing like freedom of choice requirements and things that, um, but the ultimate um, uh, thing that will end up happening is that you will see um, providers uh, having to leave, you know, the Medicaid network or you might see some providers having to make financial decisions to if they want to provide other services then they will have to stop providing um, abortion and so uh, you need to see an addition to each and WIPA um, some protections against those kind of things. So I think um, we've definitely sort of like talked about this sort of like walked around this a little bit but I think it's important to ask the question directly which people are most likely to have their access to abortion restricted because it's you know this as you're saying it's it's there's a financial barrier but it's and there's like a distance barrier so like what are we talking about here um like who who can't get abortions who need it who need it um, so I hate to say it's sort of the usual people who we um, systemically oppress uh, in this country. So uh, people of color, um, uh, particularly w- women of color, um, young people who we haven't even talked about who might have to go through some other onerous barriers like getting a judicial bypass and actually going before court to say, I want an abortion, uh, which many of us who are beyond, um, I guess because they're young people, wouldn't be able to go do that. Um, people with disabilities who also um, have had uh, th- their reproductive health decisions coerced, uh, also disproportionately impacted. People with low incomes, uh, people living in the South. I don't know if I love half anybody. Yeah. <laughs> and even going back to the judicial bypass aspect, I just can't imagine like a very personal decision like that, that you now have to go through a whole legal process, file paperwork, plea in front of a judge to allow you to do the thing that like is so personal to you yeah and explain yourself you know um so it's just ridiculous we would never sort of put those we we've come to accept these sorts of restrictions against certain populations and certain group of people but we would never accept those things so for instance like you were talking about with somebody going to get a tooth extraction you know imagine um an older uh white man wealthy white man having to go explain while he needed viagra um or or some other health service yeah um, do you have anything to add around that about who's the most impacted, Jackie? No, I think Jamila is exactly right. And it's 
again, this is not an accident. These are all restrictions that have been imposed intentionally. When Henry Hyde proposed the Hyde Amendment, he said he wanted to prevent all abortion, but the only mechanism he had at the time was to use the Medicaid bill. So he was intentionally blocking low-income folks from accessing abortion care, and I think that you know his successors have followed the same model. Yeah. And it's also people who get their uh, insurance through, like, the government, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so it extends past that. Yeah. And like I said, people in the Peace Corps, people, Native Americans getting uh, access to the Indian Health Service, um, uh, uh, you know, a range, a range of groups of, of folks. It's, uh, you know, technically we always talk about it with Medicaid, but it's just put on this health spending bill. So anything that's get funded through that program um, gets uh, high, it gets attached. Even things like I mentioned sort of the rest- Restrictions, sort of efforts to undermine Title X earlier. Well, you know, Title X couldn't have been, you can't use those funds for um, abortion anyway, but. Yeah, and I would add that there are some unique and even more onerous restrictions on folks who are currently serving in the military Mm -hmm. or veterans or who are dependents of those people. Yeah, and so it's sort of, it's like a lot lot of things. Rich people are going to be able to do the things they want to do regardless of what the law says, Um, but we're going to put all these restrictions um, on people who don't have the financial means or uh, some of like the technical know-how to actually uh, navigate these systems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So what changes would you like to see happen in the abortion rights space in in the next year or in the (laughs) next five years? You know, we've got a system that sounds like like uh, it needs improvement despite a Supreme Court case ruling that talks about um, the rights that we have. So I think this will be of no surprise to anyone in the room that my hope is that we'll be able to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. (laughs) Um, Certainly there are some structural barriers at the moment. We do not have a pro-choice majority in the Senate. We do not have a friendly administration in the White House. So I think that might be... We don't? (laughs) So I think getting the bill enacted might be more of a five-year plan than a one-year plan, uh, but certainly uh, on all of our to-do lists. Yeah, I mean, and all the things we d- talked about, I mean, I think also the sort of aspect around, I think there has been a lot of effort around destigmatization, but I think, um, you know, there's a lot of great groups out there doing uh, more work, and I think that would be great to see. One thing we haven't talked about here yet, I mentioned sort of the Supreme Court case, but also just the role of courts. You know, the Trump administration came into uh, office saying that they were specifically looking to appoint anti-choice judges. Judges um, and has appointed a number of lifetime appointees, including a couple on the Supreme Court, and that has emboldened sort of the state actions. And so, over some years, hopefully, we can uh, sort of trend that a different way and actually um, have uh, you know the judges committed to the rule of law and not to sort of an agenda around taking away abortion access. I like how you mentioned agenda. Because it's the courts, it's Congress, it's administration, mm-hmm. it's at the state level, it's at the local level. There's like all of these different digs. Um, and also just wanted to throw my hat into the ring in terms of like the question of what changes we'd like to see happen in the abortion rights space. And I really love that you mentioned, Jamil, like the stigma and shame to see that kind of like eradicated. Um, as all of us have mentioned, there's been really great efforts to try to take that away. But I do think too that to be able to to have a legal system and to have a government that can actually like mirror the people like we also have to change the culture around Mm -hmm. us as well so seeing some changes there would be great um 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've been listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, today, January 22nd, 47th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Um, so we're talking all things uh, Roe v. Wade, and we will be right back with more after this commercial break. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. The Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host Charlotte Hancock, and your other co-host Edward Theogene. And today we are talking um, about the 47th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. We have uh, here in studio with us Jackie Blank from the Center of Reproductive Rights and Jamil Fields Allsbrook um, from the Women's Initiative at the Center for American Progress. Um, thanks again so much for joining us here in the studio. Um, so uh, we've talked a lot about um, what Roe v. Wade uh, has done for um, Americans, what it's supposed to do for Americans, um, what we should be doing to increase access, and also some specific legislation that sort of like builds on and codifies some of the rights that we're supposed to have um, with the Supreme court case. Um, so how can people get involved in this issue? Uh, what should they be calling their reps in Congress and asking for? Um, where, where are we at to keep pushing this fight forward? So I think there's a lot that people can do. Um, specifically on the Women's Health Protection Act front, I would encourage everyone to call their members of Congress and urge them to either co-sponsor the bill if they're not already, call for a hearing, call for a vote. Um, and the same would go for the Each Woman Act. Um, I think it's so important that we can demonstrate how popular these bills are uh, and continue to build momentum on them. And for people in Congress to understand that it's not just, you know, some lobby of the, this group of people in this room here in D.C., but it's really their constituents who feel so strongly about these issues. Um, can you, I'm sorry, can you name that, those pieces of legislation again? Yeah, the Women's Health Protection Act and the Each Woman Act. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I mean, definitely those two. And the only other thing I would add is to, um, you know, I know it can be boring um, to have people paying attention to what's happening in the courts. Um, uh, you know, like I mentioned, the Supreme Court case coming up, uh, Jim Medical uh, VG, um, but also all of the sort of anti-choice judges that end up having to be confirmed in front of your members of Congress is an important. You know, the reason we've seen an escalation and attacks over the last couple years is because some states are blatantly trying to pass unconstitutional laws or have passed unconstitutional laws because they think they can get them before the Supreme Court and uh, challenge Roe. And so, um, you know, both at the state and at the federal level, um, you know, pay attention to sort of your court nominees that that get that get flagged and, and their record. Um, and also um, pay attention to some of these sort of um, perhaps sometimes under the radar um, uh, laws or laws that you just think, oh, well, that's clearly um, not going to hold up. You know, we're in a time where we, we don't know if, if it will hold up. Yeah, I think that uh, is so, so crucial, Jamil. I mean, I know we've talked a little bit about um, the role of the courts, um, and I think people sort of think of the Supreme Court as um, being the sort of like the only thing we really are, have to think about, but it's just it's just not true. I mean, um, as you've been talking about, some of these uh, these federal judge appointments um, and even uh, uh, judges around the country, um, some of these appointments are what lifetime appointments. Yeah, I mean the federal federal judge appointments are lifetime appointments, and so that means long after this administration is gone, you can feel will feel those effects, and so you know it might seem 
seem like a like ah who cares about what's going on in the courts but um these sort of all we've been saying you know these rights mean nothing if they aren't able to be actualized and aren't enforced and if you have appointees with an agenda as opposed to appointees actually upholding the law exactly <laughs> yeah the integrity of our courts is at stake yeah yeah um, so I think I want to make sure that folks know where they can find more information um, about the work that um, each of you do. Uh, Jamil, where can folks find more work about um, you, about the work that you do um, online and the work that your organization does? Sure. So I'm here at CAP, so and uh, AmericanProgress.org. Uh, you can also follow me on social. Uh, on Twitter, it's at Miss Jamil, um, and Instagram, I think it's just it's just uh, Jamil AFA. Fabulous. Um, and uh, how about how about Jackie? Um, where can folks find work that you're doing? Yeah. So all of the information about the Women's Health Protection Act can be found on our website, which is actforwomen.org. Um, we put all of the relevant materials up there. If folks want to see our talking points or, or have some information to share with their members of Congress when they're absolutely going to go call them right after they listen to this radio show. Um, and for any more information about the work that the Center for Reproductive Rights is doing, they can head to our website. Fabulous. Well, we have just a couple of minutes left in the show. Um, so I guess um, for a couple, for I think one of our final questions here, I'm I'm interested. What would you What would you say is the biggest misconception surrounding Roe v. Wade? Um, I would just say it's some of the things we've been talking about. In that, um, I think people think that as long as uh, Roe is uh, remaining and in place, that it um, that everyone is able to access an abortion if they choose to or when they choose to, uh, and that's just not true. Um, the other thing I would say that is a misconception is the notion, you know, back to how we started the show that. During most many of our lifetimes, we've never known a world without Roe, and so uh, there is a tendency to think that we will never know a world that it doesn't exist, and that um, there won't be a right uh, constitutional right to an abortion. And just thinking like, oh, we're safe, and you know, sort of it's hyperbole to think that Roe Roe would be overturned, but um, that's actually you know could could happen. And there are a number of states, and CRR put out a great report about like if Roe, if there was no Roe. Um, what if Roe fell? Yeah, what if Roe fell? Um, what would happen to the right to an abortion? number of states have laws in place that um, would say there is no right if, 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 if there was a decision to overturn Roe. I couldn't agree more. And I think when we think about 47 years, it's easy to sort of fall into complacency. Like abortion is set, the rest of the world is on fire, we need to care about everything. How do we have the emotional bandwidth? Um, and I would urge folks to continue to pay attention to this space and stay involved because there's always gonna be more work to do. Yeah, absolutely. Very important. Um, well, that's all the time that we have for today. Thanks again to our guests, Jamil Fields Alsbrook and Jackie Blank, our producer, Steve Trippy, and to all of our listeners. Make sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at GenProgress. We'll talk to you next week. Um, I'm your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm your other co-host, Adwith Theogene. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. 
Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love. 